Thank you for joining us for Time in the Chapel. Each week we eagerly try to discover what God has been saying to us since time began and even further back than that. Sometimes it's right on the surface. Sometimes we have to dive a little bit deeper, but either way we do our best, lean not on our own understanding, in all our ways acknowledge Him and expect that He will direct our paths. So grab your Bible, prepare your hearts and minds, hit the pause button long enough to pray for the help of the Holy Spirit, and then join me as we open up the treasures of God's Word. In this episode, we will be celebrating the communion, otherwise known as the table of the Lord, or even sometimes the Eucharist. But before we get started, let me say a few things. In this ministry, we do things a bit differently than you may be used to. In most Christian churches around the world, there's a lot of tradition that goes along with this celebration. And let me say, by the way, that includes those independent evangelical churches who like to proudly claim to be tradition-free. We, in this ministry, like to keep it simple. We follow our Lord's instructions, and we handle ourselves in a scriptural manner while we celebrate. Now, let me explain, and this is all you'll need to know to celebrate with us. Let me begin with some scripture, always my favorite place to start, Matthew 26, 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now, here in Matthew 26, we find the authorization, if you will, for the bread and the cup, collectively known as the elements. So when you celebrate the communion, you are to have a set of the elements for everyone participating with you. That is, you'll have some bread, and a cup with something to drink. Those are the elements. Now, although we are not going to get too hung up on the details of the elements, here are some guidelines. First, the bread. Now, forget tradition. I know some of you are used to the little round wafers that are given out in some churches. Now, I'm not a big fan of that, but I don't want to get into why I'm not a big fan of that, into what I'm calling this mini lesson. Plain old bread is fine. That's what scriptures say Jesus used, so there's no reason to be too elaborate. However, having said that, let me say that when we in this ministry partake, we use unleavened bread. You maybe know unleavened bread as matzah or matzo or matzo crackers. The reason why we use matzo crackers or unleavened bread is because we can be certain that's what Jesus ate that night. The story of what we today call the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper 
took place during the celebration of Passover and all devout Jews, and trust me, there was no Jew more devout than Jesus. All devout Jews ate only unleavened bread during the celebration of Passover. Jesus and his disciples, you can be sure, only had unleavened bread on their table that night. So we use unleavened bread when we partake in the communion. Now you may ask, is it a sin to eat leavened bread during the communion? Bread that has yeast in it. Is that a sin while celebrating the communion? Well, in my opinion, no. And the, the, the devil and the church, they want us to worry about that. They want us to overly worry about that, but let's not. Remember, the whole point of the communion is to remember him, not just some silly list of ingredients. Let's just make a decision on the type of bread and then go with it because it's just bread. Again, tradition may want to tell you something different, but it is just bread. The important part in all of this is what the bread represents. And Jesus told us what that is. Quote, I'm reading from scripture again. Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. So that's the bread. It's a symbol of his body, the body he gave up for us. So what's next? Matthew 26, 27, and he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now, here is where there's been a sustained battle for centuries. Again, our aim in this lesson is not to argue, fuss, and fight. So, let's just keep this simple by again telling you what we believe and the manner in which we partake. First of all, at our communion celebrations, there are two elements. Now, some church tradition doesn't stress the two-element thing. Some church tradition says that all you need is the bread, but that's not what Jesus said. And so, we have both elements, the bread, which we've already discussed, and the cup. Now, what about the cup? What should be in it? Well, as we just said, Jesus was celebrating the Passover with his friends when all of this took place. So we can be relatively certain that the cup he chose to share was one of the ritual cups of the Seder, which is the traditional, highly ritualized Passover meal. We've covered the Seder in previous lessons. And if you remember that lesson, you'll know that there are ceremonial cups of wine. So most likely there was a cup of wine, and I use that term loosely, there was a cup of wine at the table, and that was the cup that Jesus used. That's why most of the time when you do receive the cup at communion, there's wine in it. However, it's 
not unusual to be in a church that simply uses grape juice and even sometimes water. Now, let me state my position on this. It's exactly how I feel about the bread. I don't believe it matters what's in the cup, so don't let the contents of the cup distract you. You are celebrating a memorial with symbols. That's what the elements are. They're symbols. Now, down through the centuries, again, I will say this has been hotly debated, and we're not going to reopen that debate here. In this ministry, we use, listen to me, plain old fruit juice, either grape or cherry. Now, don't let that fact cause you to judge my stance on the use of alcohol. My feelings about alcohol have nothing to do with our choice of this communion element. This is why we use non-alcoholic fruit juice. This is listen to this. In order to produce alcohol, some of you know you will most likely use a type of yeast. Now, this is, of course, an oversimplification. Please don't email me and write me letters trying to straighten me out about the fermenting process. Most commonly, fermentation of alcoholic beverages involves the introduction of yeast. Now, yeast is leaven, and since there is to be no leaven whatsoever in the homes of devout Jews during the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, by the way, which follows the Feast of Passover, because there was no leaven in the homes at that time, during that celebration, we believe that Jesus probably didn't hand out alcoholic wine. Alcoholic wine is technically leavened grape juice. Now, can I state that categorically? Can I categorically say that Jesus did not hand out wine? No, it doesn't say. And what do I say every time the Bible doesn't say something about something? It's not important. But I will say, as I did before, I don't think you're sinning if you do things differently or think things differently than we do when it comes to the contents of the elements. Once again, I say you decide what you use and then put, listen to me, put the whole matter out of your mind. Which leads us to the last very important issue we'll discuss with regard to the communion. This time, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, ye proclaim the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat the bread or drink the cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man prove himself. The King James says, let a man examine himself. This is the revised version. Let a man examine himself, so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he that eateth and drinketh, eateth and drinketh judgment unto himself, if he discern not the body. Now for many centuries, there has been fear 
around this table, and then eventually fear gave way to apathy. First, we feared the table of the Lord. Then we didn't care. That's where we are now, where people don't care. And neither of those two states is acceptable. Let's cover the fear. Now, to be honest, I get it. I understand the element of fear. The above passage that I just read is rather ominous. It speaks of being guilty of something. It speaks of judgment. There are, these are things that you and I and every clear-thinking Christian shrinks from. We don't want to be guilty. We don't want judgment. We want to do things right. And then throw in the very next verse, For this cause many among you are weak and sickly, and not a few sleep, meaning die. Throw that verse in, and then you have a full-scale panic every time the pastor says, Time for communion. No! Do we really think that's what Jesus intended when he left this for us, for us to be fearful when we come to the table? Now, we can, and we have spent entire lessons on this, but let me set your mind somewhat at ease. Paul is saying that if we drink, eat and drink unworthily, now that word is an adverb, unworthily, that's why I keep saying it like that, unworthily is an adverb. Adverbs describe actions, not actors. This is not unworthy, this is unworthily. Adverbs describe an action. Paul says, if you eat and drink in an unworthy manner, then you're risking those things that he mentioned. The judgment. Being guilty. If you partake in an unworthy manner. Now, I don't want to go into too much depth here about what those things are that he says you're risking, because the point of this lesson is to go over how to make Jesus happy when you celebrate the communion. In this lesson, we're not focusing on anything other than what God expects out of us. Because frankly, if we do what he asks, well, then it won't matter what happens to us when we do otherwise, right? God says to eat and drink in a worthy manner, so let's just do that. Well... What does that mean? Fortunately, Paul tells us, and he tells us in plain, easy language. Paul says that the unworthy manner is eating and drinking, not discerning the Lord's body. The unworthy manner is when you don't discern the Lord's body. A worthy manner, therefore, is discerning the Lord's body, right? Does that make sense? Now, you, maybe you're saying, well, what does discern mean? What does that mean? Well, let's look at Webster's. Now, this is important. This is important to get to the basics, not only to avoid those negative ramifications of not eating and drinking worthily, but also because this sweet little celebration was given to us by someone we love, right? He told us to do this, and we love him. If you're 
dear granny asked you to take your shoes off in the house, you'd do it because you're because she's your sweet granny and you love her and you want to please her. You don't ignore granny, at least I hope you don't. You don't sit there and, well, should I take my shoes off or shouldn't I? I mean, how important is this? Is granny going to smack me in the back of the head? Is that really what you think about? Granny asked me. I love her. I'll do what she says. Why would this be any different? Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. You're going to find out in a moment that remembrance and discerning are the same thing. Now, according to Webster, to discern means to come to know or recognize mentally. It's that simple. That's the definition of the English word discern. It also sounds, well, pretty close to the word remembrance, don't you think? Real quick, Webster says, remembrance means the state of bearing in mind. Same thing as recognizing something mentally. They mean the same thing. Jesus wants you to remember him, to discern him, discern what he did for you when you go to the table. Now, one more time, forget for a moment what happens to you if you don't and just concentrate on how this is simply a request from someone we love. Jesus wants you to remember him. Listen, if we concentrated more on this, whatever this is as a relationship, this church thing, this Christianity, if we concentrated more on this being a relationship between two people, a lot of the silliness goes away. We cloud it with tradition. We, we make it foggy with all the silly things that we do and think and say. It's a relationship. You can get to the true meaning and intention of things if you just realize this is a relationship. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Okay, I love you. That's what I'm going to do. Yes, there are things that can happen to me if I don't do that. Forget about that. Jesus said to do it. I'm going to do it that way. I'm going to remember him. He wants us to think about him. Now, whenever I take communion in a church, which is not very often, church is not a good place to concentrate on the things of God. And I'm sorry if that sounds harsh, but it's true. Church is not a good place to go if you want to concentrate on the things of God. Now, most churches, there are some churches, sure. Most churches, no. Tell me, honestly, does it look like anyone is concentrating on Jesus at communion in church? Again, maybe some, but not very often, unfortunately. And that's partly why we celebrate communion with you through this ministry, either over the radio or through our web stream or now through these podcasts. We want you to have some control over your discerning environment. So when you partake, and the lesson again, I want to tell you, the lesson that follows this little intro, yeah, some, some little intro, the lesson that follows this intro 
is one in which we go to the table of the Lord. And I'm suggesting to you that if you want to partake, once we get to the communion in this lesson, I'm going to tell you it's not, it doesn't happen right away. It happens sometime during the lesson. This was previously recorded a couple of years ago. Sometime in that lesson, we go to the table of the Lord. And if you want to partake then I suggest that you find somewhere quiet and without distraction so that you can commit your full attention to discerning and remembering. So let's wrap this up. It's already gone far longer than I had intended it to do. The lesson that follows contains a communion celebration, and if you want to join us, and you don't have to. You can just listen to the lesson. You can listen to the communion and how we do things. You do not have to partake if you listen. Just listen. But if you do decide to partake, here are some things to keep in mind. Number one, this is a wrap-up. This is a summary. Number one, have a set of the elements, that's the bread and the wine, for each person who will be participating with you. The bread will symbolize the body, and the cup will symbolize the blood. You, and what's in the cup? It can be wine, it can be juice or water. The one that will be in front of me will have juice. Number two, make sure you are in a place where you do not have any distractions, at least for the few minutes that we will be sharing together at the table of the Lord. Turn off your phone, put the little ones to bed, put the dogs upstairs, draw the curtains if you have to, just find a quiet, peaceful place so you can remember him. You got all that? The table of the Lord is one of the most lovely experiences we can have as members of his church. We will be getting into a communion message in just a few moments. The table of the Lord is a lovely celebration. If we do it right, without fear and without distraction, it can be something you look forward to time and again. Just make sure you show Jesus the respect he deserves and partake of the communion as he commanded, as he said, do this in remembrance of me. The Bible, our primary source of information about God, tells us that we are in a terrible state. Scripture makes clear that we are in a condition of nearly impossible proportions. Now, I said nearly impossible. It's not impossible, just nearly impossible. More on that in a moment. The Bible tells us that there is something seriously wrong with us. We are in the, we may not tell each other, you're in grave danger, my friend. We may not say that to each other. We may always be patting each other on the back. You're doing fine. You're doing the best that you can. You should be proud of yourself. We may not say that. We may not say what the Bible says, you're in grave danger. We may say something different, but the Bible says we are in grave danger danger. Danger. We are in the most 
difficult of circumstances. As a matter of fact, we are in desperate need of a rescue. Now, you may be wondering, what are you talking about? Why are we in such a terrible state? Well, I have one word for you, sin. We were created to be immortal beings that were given great privilege, great authority, and everlasting peace. That was the original creative plan. I love what J. Vernon McGee says. He says, we were created to be kings. You see, God gave us dominion. God gave man dominion. And only kings have dominion. He gave us, God gave us dominion over everything. Unfortunately, now everything that God gave us dominion over threatens us. This is not the way God had intended it to be. You see, God created everything to serve us. In the beginning, there was no such thing as fear, no such thing as doubt, certainly no such thing as death. All we were to do was be fruitful and multiply. To quote Ira Gershwin, nice work if you can get it. But then, and to my knowledge, there's no direct scriptural indication of how soon after creation, but eventually sin entered in and robbed mankind of the, all of that peace, all of that privilege, and certainly all of that authority. Now, we, of course, have a tendency to put all the blame on Adam. Yes, Adam was the original sinning man, and being in his family, we now all have to deal with that condition of sin. But we ourselves are not without our own blame. It's true that before we come to Christ, we are tainted by our relationship to Adam, but we don't do ourselves any favors, do we? We exasperate our condition with respect to God by our own thoughts, deeds, and actions. Isaiah put it best in chapter 59 of his book, verse 2, But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. But you know what? Despite all the gloom, despite all the doom, we can thank God that He is God. I can't explain it. I don't know how. But God has been prepared for our fall. He has had a plan since the foundation of the world to make things right. Well, you may say, well, if, if he had a plan, then he knew what was going to happen. And if he knew what was going to happen, then why didn't he stop it? Well, to be honest, I don't know for sure. But here's what I think. 
God didn't stop the fall of man because he doesn't want perfect robots. He wants you. He doesn't want a family that doesn't have a choice. He wants love. You know, there are few things that stunt a child's growth more than undue parental interference. There are few things that drive a child away faster and further than a parent who doesn't give his child space to become themselves. If you don't let your child grow on their own, if you don't let them fail on their own, they will never appreciate success. Listen, I don't understand most anything. Why the God of the universe wants my puny love, I have no idea. But I do know it must be worth something to him because he sure paid a dear price to get it. God has a plan. And that plan is based on love. How do I know that? Because in his word, he's laid it out. We see in scripture God's plan spelled out. And you realize God didn't have to let us in on what he's doing. He could have just done it. But God is merciful. And he wants you to know what kind of God he is. He wants you to have faith in him, so he set down what the plan is, how it's going to happen, what its final outcome will be, so that when you start to see it unfold before your eyes, your faith in him will grow, and that's important to him. Your faith, is important to him. You see, you can't have faith in something that you don't love. Every time we go to the table of the Lord, I can't avoid the subject of love. When you take the time to study some of the world's religions, and I'll not point any of them out. The one thing that lacks is love. You know, Gene Scott used to call Satan the great imitator. And in that he meant Satan injected into the culture of mankind all of these near replications of God's plan. But the one thing Satan can never re replicate 
is God's love. He can replicate the rituals. He can replicate the histories, if you will. He can replicate the procession of things, but he can't put God's love in there. And it's God's love that brings Christianity to the top. It's God's love that floats Christianity above all. You cannot imitate God's love. God's love cannot be imitated. But it can be imputed. When God takes resonance in you, when Christ is born in your heart through faith, then God's love will start oozing out of you, for lack of a better term. I just wanted to use that because you get the idea. God wants you to have faith in him. Because when you have faith, it means you love him. Faith is of immense importance in your relationship to God. Faith is the pivot point for God's power. It's the leverage point for God's power. And when you have faith, he can do so many things. It's really not so complicated. If, if I wanted to hand you a piece of bread because you looked so hungry, if you don't take that bread from me, you won't get the benefits of it. You have to take the bread from me. From me. God is trying to get you to believe in him because it is the faith that changes your life. It opens you up to the power of God. When I hand you that bread and you take it from me, then you unlock all of the potential of the nutrition. But first you have to believe that it's going to help you. If you believe that that bread is a stone, you're not going to take it because you believe it's a stone and you don't believe the stone's going to do you any good. If you accept God's call to believe in him, that means you're ready for the power to express itself in you and through you. And you know what's the, you know what is the best part of that? is that he rewards faith. That amazes me. He says that for our faith, he gives us, first of all, eternal life, but a whole lot of other things besides. And he does that because of his mercy and loving kindness. Meaning, he provides the ability for us to believe in him through his 
mercy and loving kindness. He provides the means by which our faith can grow. And one of the ways he does that is through his word. And it is in his word that we find his plan, as we've said. Well, what is this plan? God's plan to set things right. Remember in the beginning we said we are in the worst possible state without him. Outside of him, we are in the worst possible state. And that he put in a plan in order to get us out of that worst possible state. And that we said that he told us what that plan is in his word. Well, then what is the plan? God's plan to set things right is called redemption. Now, just so that we're all on the same page, let me recite Webster's definition of this term. You may call it something else, but here's the definition of redemption. Deliverance from bondage, distress, or from liability to any evil or forfeiture, either by money, labor, or other means. That is what redemption means, and that is how we will be using that word. If you want to call that anything else, you can call it whatever you want to, but as long as whatever you call it means deliverance from bondage, distress, or from liability to any evil or forfeiture, either by money, labor, or other means, whatever you want to call that, I'll call it redemption, you call it whatever you want. So redemption is the noun that is formed by the verb to redeem. The word redeem is found in the English version of both the New Testament and the Old Testament. And the word to redeem, when you find it in the English version of the Old Testament and the New, excuse me, in the New Testament, if you find the word to redeem in the New Testament, it is translating two different Greek words. Number one, exorazo, exagorazo, exagorazo. That's number one. Number two, lutruo. Those are the two Greek words that get translated into the English word to redeem. Now, both of these words simply mean to ransom or to buy up. That's what it means to redeem in the New Testament. Now, the Old Testament, where our conversation for today will focus, sometimes uses the Hebrew word goel for redeem. Some people call a redeemer a goel. It's based on the word goel. And the Brown Drivers Briggs Hebrew Dictionary, which is an academic level Hebrew dictionary, defines the word goel to mean to redeem, avenge, revenge, ransom. Now, that's a bit of a simplified definition. Ga'al is found 98 times in the Old Testament. 
So let's go over a few of them just to see the diversity of uses for that word. So number one, Exodus 6, 6. Wherefore say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you, Gael, with a outstretched with a stretched out arm and with great judgment. So here in Exodus 6, 6, Gaal is being used as a type of rescue from an opposing foe. That is one of the ways that Gaal is used in the Old Testament. It's used that same way in Genesis 48:16. The angel which redeemed me from all evil. It is a rescue from evil. It is a rescue from the enemy. So it is a rescue from something outside, a, a, fo- a force outside of yourself. Well, that's not the only way Gaal is used. Sometimes Gaal is used to describe a type of rescue from within, a rescue from oneself. Isaiah 54, 8, in a little wrath, I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. So Isaiah is saying that Gaal, using Gaal as a rescue from ourselves, from our own failures, from our own sins. God is our Redeemer from ourselves. And then, Gaal is sometimes used in a very practical way with respect to property, property that was somehow lost, somehow forfeited. Leviticus 25.9, And if a man sell a dwelling house in a walled city, then he may redeem it within a whole year after it is sold. Within a full year may he redeem it. So Gaal is also used with respect to owned property, property that was once lost. You can redeem property that was once lost. Make sense? Now, there is one other part of the definition of the word Gaal that I want to share with you for this lesson. The word is also defined, again, according to Brown Drivers Briggs Hebrew Dictionary, to mean, listen to this, to be or to do the part of a kinsman or to act as a kinsman redeemer. Remember I said in the beginning, a goel, some people call a redeemer a goel based on the word goel. So this word goel is at the heart of what is called the concept or the law of the kinsman redeemer. And that's why I gave you just a few of the instances that the word Gaal is used in the Old Testament so you can get a feel for why God chose this word to be used in connection with the law of the kinsman redeemer. It means to be rescued from an enemy. It means to be rescued from yourself. It means to redeem property that was once owned that is now sold for whatever reason. 
That is what it means to redeem, that those are the uses of the word ga'el. Ga'el is a word who is a word that is at the heart of the law of the kinsman redeemer. So we can actually find the law in practice, in practical ways throughout Scripture. As a matter of fact, the book of Ruth is a, an example, a drama, a true drama, exhibiting the law of the kinsman redeemer. It is the law of the kinsman redeemer is an actual law found in Leviticus. Remember, now I want you to understand this. The law is the expression of how God does things, but it does not necessarily serve as prophecy. So I want you to understand, those of you that know where I'm going with the law of the kinsman redeemer, I want you to understand this is not, the law of the kinsman redeemer was not necessarily put in there as prophecy. It was put in the Bible, in the law, to show you how God does things. It shows you how God exacts his judgments. It's the, the law is the way God thinks. Now, why do you bring that up, John? Because I want you to understand that brings more life and substance and solidity, solidness to the law of the kinsman redeemer. It gives you an idea when we come to the ultimate meaning, the ultimate expression of the law of the kinsman redeemer, you'll be able to see that this is the heart of God. This is how God does things. God doesn't lose anything that belongs to him. Nothing. He has fail-safes in place. God is not going to lose you. He has been prepared for all the madness that surrounds us. And he's bringing to bear his mind, his heart, his law. Because remember, remember, God's law applies to all of us. It applies to the Jews and it applies to the Gentiles. Either you follow the law or you rely on someone else to follow it for you. But either way, you're going to be judged by God's standard. Either it falls on you or it falls on Christ. Do you understand that? The law of the kinsman redeemer is God's failsafe. It is why God can say the law and its judgments can fall on Christ because that's a part of the plan. You see, God will not compromise on his law. He will not say good for some and not good for others. Applies to some and doesn't apply to others. That would make him dishonorable. And believe me, God's honor is more important to him than it is to you.
God is not going to change the way he is. Not even for love. We do that. We go back on our word for a lot of reasons, including love. God won't do that. You know why? It goes back to what we said earlier. He wants you to believe in him. He wants you to believe that he'll do what he said he'll do no matter what. That there are no circumstances, there is no occasion, there is no reason that God will ever turn his back on what he said. Not even if he has to pay the highest of all prices for that, which he's done. The law is the way God does things. And therefore, the law of the kinsman redeemer is the way God sees things. But it's so much more than just some administrative procedure. It's a picture of how he feels. It's a reflection of something greater. And it it's true expression, again, not prophetic, but it's true expression like everything else in the law was brought out by Christ himself. The kinsman redeemer, as expressed in the book of Ruth, was Boaz. Boaz played the part of the kinsman redeemer. We're not going to talk about the book of Ruth today. We have in the past. I suggest you read it. It's a very short book. You could do it in less than 40 minutes probably. But Boaz is universally known as the kinsman redeemer for Ruth. Boaz was related to the mother-in-law of Ruth. Therefore, they were family. Therefore, Boaz became the kin that redeemed Ruth and her claim on property. Boaz was the type and shadow of Christ. He was the expression of the kinsman redeemer and what the kinsman redeemer can do for us. And so, therefore, he was a type and shadow of Christ. You know what a shadow is, right? A shadow is an outline without substance. And it is an outline without substance of something that does have substance. In fact, it is the substance of that object that causes the shadow to appear. It isn't the substance. Boaz was not the kinsman redeemer. But a shadow gives a vague representation of the substance. Sometimes we see the shadow come before the shadow maker, right? Boaz was seen before Christ came so that when Christ came, we would recognize him as the kinsman redeemer. The Old Testament is full of these things. And as a matter of fact, every instance of a kinsman redeemer that you find in scripture points to Christ because everything points to Christ. It just so happens that the kinsman redeemer expressions happen to be the greatest of those examples. Let's look at Leviticus to see the basic idea of the law. 
And if a sojourner, Leviticus 25, 47, and if a sojourner or stranger wax rich by thee and thy brother that dwelleth by him wax poor and sell himself unto the stranger or the sojourner by thee or to the stock of the stranger's family, later that he is sold, he may be redeemed again. One of his brethren may redeem him, either his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him, or any that is nigh of kin unto him of his family may redeem him, or if he be able, he may redeem himself. Now, in years past, we've stuck with the, that was the King James Version, and we've stuck with that when we talked about the kinsman redeemer today. I thought it might be a good idea if we got a little easier translation. There are certain things that are being said in the King James Version of Leviticus 25, 47 through 49 that might be a little difficult to understand. And I think it's important for you to understand. I think it's important for everyone to understand completely what the law of the kinsman redeemer is. So I decided today we'll read from the NIV, starting again at Leviticus 25, 47. If a foreigner residing among you becomes rich, and any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to the foreigner or to a member of the foreigner's clan, they retain the right of redemption after they have sold themselves. I'm trying not to inject commentary, but I must say to you, when we look around, the world, a foreigner to us, seems to be thriving. They seem, the world seems to be get rich, seems to be getting richer, and we seem to be getting poorer. And I'm not talking just in a material sense. You know that. If a foreigner residing among you becomes rich, and any of your fellow Israelites become poor, and sell themselves to the foreigner or to the member of the foreigner's clan. Sometimes we yield to the foolishness of the world. Hey, my buddy saved $50,000 on his taxes last year by claiming some false claims. You should do the same thing. Maybe I should. I really am tired of paying my taxes. Sometimes we fall into the dishonesty, sins, and traps of the world. If a foreigner residing among you becomes rich and any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to the foreigner or to a member of the foreigner's clan, they retain the right of redemption after they have sold themselves. You will always have the chance while you're alive to turn back to Christ and say, I'm sorry. Rescue me. Redeem me. The world has seduced me. I've turned my back on what I know is right. You never give away forever the opportunity to go back to Christ while you still have breath in your lungs. If a foreigner residing among you becomes rich and any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to the foreigner or to a member of the foreigner's clan, they retain the right of redemption after they've sold themselves. That's how God sees things. 
God allows us to retain the right of redemption even after we fail. He grants that to us in his law. If a foreigner residing among you becomes rich and any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to the foreigner or to a member of the foreigner's clan, they retain the right of redemption after they sold themselves. One of their relatives may redeem them, an uncle or a cousin or any blood relative in their clan may redeem them, or if they prosper, they may redeem themselves. The law is always available to you as your means of redemption. That's the law is there. The law applies. If you can follow the law, then you can redeem yourself. But you can't. So you need one of your relatives that may redeem you, an uncle or a cousin or any blood relative in your clan may redeem you. That is the way God sees it. The law of the kinsman redeemer is found throughout the Old Testament. God did that on purpose so that you could see that that law is true and just. But we see its fulfillment in Christ. At its most basic, the law of the kinsman redeemer was established by God to allow a relative to liberate a family member who had been sold into slavery in order to pay off a debt. That's the basic meaning of the law of the kinsman redeemer. When someone found themselves in trouble based on some lack, and they found that they needed to sell themselves to a foreigner, God said, it's not over for you. There is a way that you can be redeemed. Either you can redeem yourself or your kinsman, someone related to you, a man like you, can rescue you from your failure. The purpose of this message is to show you that your impossible failure has been paid by your kinsman. I'm trying to show you that you've been brought, bought up. You've been redeemed. That's the purpose of this message. There's another purpose, and that's to prove to you God's faithfulness. He has, since the beginning, provided for your rescue. And we see the law of the kinsman redeemer in action in the Old Testament so that, and we see that purposely because God wants that to build your faith. He wants you to see that he validates that law so that you can see it's a valid law for you. That piece of bread that I'm trying to hand you is nutritional. It will do you some good so that you'll take it and believe in it. When we see that God's word continuously points to the work of Christ, it gives us the confidence 
that we need to accept the redemption. Because if you don't believe in it, you're not going to accept it. And if you don't accept it, you're going to die. So let's dig a little bit deeper into the law of the kinsman redeemer. And as we do, I want you to think about what Christ has done for you and see how it parallels what God laid down thousands of years before the cross. So in the law of the kinsman redeemer, the Bible tells us that four conditions must be present. Number one, the redeemer must have what is necessary to redeem. In other words, the one that's come to purchase the liability must have what's necessary to buy it up. The one who will cover the debt must have precisely what's necessary in order to erase that debt. Does that make sense? They must have the proper price that the situation demands. If the debt was 1,000 drachma and you bring 1,000 pesos, not going to cover the debt. You must have what the debt called for. Number two, the Redeemer must be kin. God's word says that the one that had the means to redeem had to be near of kin. In other words, a relative of the one who needed the redemption. Why? Listen, family is important to God. Our modern world is trying desperately to rewrite the definition of family when it's not family. Being related to one another in a family is very important. We're trying to change that. God finds family important. Number three, the Redeemer must be willing to redeem. I'm going to spend a couple minutes here because this is important. The one who has the sufficient price and the one who is near of kin could not be forced to provide for the redemption. The redemption, the role of redeemer had to be one of free choice. Now there's, and the reason why I'm going to stress this is because there is some controversy on this. If you read some commentary, and I did this morning, there are commentary that exist that tend to use the word obligation. Some will argue that the kinsman was obliged. It was his duty, and he could not turn his back on that duty, that he must redeem his relative and his relative's goods. Let me tell you, that is not the case. When you read the book of Ruth, you'll find that. There were actually two kinsmen who were eligible to redeem Ruth's property. Two. One refused. The one that refused was actually closer in line. The one that 
had the greater right, the greater obligation, if you're going to call it an obligation, to redeem Ruth. That relative refused for there's reasons laid out. They seem rather silly, but that's fine. When that relative refused, that kinsman refused, that's when Boaz came in and filled the role. So there is no call for an obligation. You can refuse. In God's law, you can refuse to be a redeemer if you are a kinsman. But why then do the scholars keep using the word obligation? To be honest, I'm not sure. But here's what I believe. Those that believe that the redemption is an obligation are most likely, and I'm, and the reason why I'm going through this is because I, I, I want to warn you of something. I'll get to the warning at the end. The scholars and others that believe that the redemption is an obligation are most likely being influenced by the Targums. Now, you have heard me use the word Targums before. The Targums were documents that were written in the common language of the people long after the original Hebrew version of the Bible was in circulation. So the Targums were written in the common language of the people by various Jewish scholars. The Targums were, and I hate to use this word, but I will so that you can get a better understanding. They were a type of translation of the Bible. You see, the Targums became necessary because at some point in time, the classic Hebrew language had declined considerably. The use of Hebrew had declined considerably among the common folk. And the Targums were written to mitigate the religious damage that that decline had on the people. The Targums were originally written to keep the people engaged with Scripture because it is God's plan that Scripture become the pivot, the central core of the life of the believer. And because very few people were able to read the original Hebrew Scripture, scholars came in and perhaps originally felt like they were their motives were their motives were pure and they did some translation but eventually they expanded greatly on what was the actual original meanings of scripture in many cases the opinions and the feelings of the and if you've read any of the targums you know that i'm speaking the truth they inject interpretation more than translation now here's my warning be careful. Be careful who's teaching you God's word, including me. Don't take my word for it. Do your own homework. The Targums changed in many respects what God was trying to say. And that is especially true here in the Law of the Kinsman Redeemer, the Targum of Jonathan. That's one of the more famous targum, Targums. Actually, in, to be 
accurate as Targumum. That's the plural, but we'll use the word Targums because I don't speak very well when I, I don't pronounce very well when I speak Hebrew. So we'll say Targums. One of the most important Targums was the Targum of Jonathan. And the Targum of Jonathan implied that the duty, that there was duty involved with being a kinsman redeemer, that the person who was related to the one that needed to be redeemed had to do that. Now, I believe this was a true and honest fear on his the, Jonathan's part. He felt like if the person was not redeemed, then they would be forever corrupted by their foreign master. He was afraid that if we didn't lay down an obligation on the idea of redemption, that that soul would be lost forever. Good intention, but it changed scripture. That's not what God had intended. There is no obligation when it comes to the kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer does not have to redeem. He redeems out of love for family. If he redeems, he redeems out of love for family. Does that make sense? Now, some people think that, John, you're going into a lot of detail. This is not that important. It is important. If you want to fully understand what and why Jesus did what he did, you must know he could not have been forced into it. God did not push Jesus out of heaven. Jesus walked out on his own. And that's important so that you can see that it was based in love. Not fear. Not even obedience. His obedient he was obedient, yes. But he was obedient out of love, not obedient because he was afraid of the circumstances. That's why I don't spend much time telling you where you're going to go if you don't accept Christ. I don't talk much about the burning fires of hell. I talk about them, but I don't talk about them in relation to your salvation, trying to get you to save out of trying to get you to get saved out of fear. Sometimes I do. Being saved is saved, but I I don't want you to get saved because you're afraid of what's going to happen. I want you to be saved because you miss your Father in heaven. And you want to be with Him forever because you love Him. Jesus did what he, we should be more like him. He did what he did out of love and not compulsion. And there's no other valid way to redeem under the law of the kinsman redeemer. Is that clear? Number four, the redeemer must actually redeem. The redeemer can't just talk about it. He must pay the price. 
the transaction must be completed. Lip service has never gotten anyone saved. Action is required. So what's the point? What's the point of going over those four conditions that are spelled out in, in Scripture? Well, it's to show you that Christ fulfilled it all. It's to show you that Christ has chosen our Redeemer well. Christ is our Redeemer, and He has met all the requirements for our redemption, and it is therefore lawful, valid, and indisputable. Jesus followed the law to redeem you, and no one can say anything about it. Well, who's going to say something about it? Satan. Satan's going to try to bother you. He's going to say, uh, Jesus's salvation wasn't valid, so don't put too much faith in that, and certainly don't tell anyone else how you got saved, because it's not valid. It is valid. God laid the law down, Jesus followed the law, and now you're saved, provided that you accept it, because you have to accept it. If you were in jail and I came down to bring bail to get you out of jail, if you decide to sit in that jail, you're going to stay in the jail, whether I paid it or not. Whether I pay the bail or not, if you decide to stay in jail because the food is good, nothing I can do. Nothing more I can do. You have to walk through the doors of that jail. You have to accept the fact that I already paid your bail. When somebody comes to you and said, John paid your bail, you have to say, I accept that. He has the money. He loves me. Okay, I'll go through the doors. Otherwise, you'll say, I don't even know the guy. I'm not falling for that trick. I will continue to try to open the door myself. I'll continue to try to file the bars down so that I can leave the jail on my own. Christ did what was necessary. Let's go over the four again just to see. Number one, remember the Redeemer must have the proper price. Well, our debt was the debt of sin. We were slaves to the law, and our servitude could not be relieved until the demands of the law had been met. Matthew 5.18, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. The price that was necessary to free us from the grips of sin was a pure and perfect life. That was what it required. The person who came to redeem could not have one sin, not one. Jesus could not come to the place of redemption with one single sin because that one single sin itself had to be forgiven. If that one single sin had to be forgiven, then all of it is invalid. Jesus had to come with the perfect price. He couldn't come with pesos if the redemption money was dollars. I don't remember what I used as an example before. The price that was necessary to free us from the grips of sin was a sinless life. Our Redeemer exchanged His perfect life to free us. That was the price that was required. Jesus was punished as if He sinned so that we could be set free as if we were sinless. 
God said the wages of sin are death, and our Redeemer paid that wage. So, he had the price. He fulfilled that first obligation of the Redeemer, the first condition of the kinsman Redeemer. Number two, the other condition was, the second condition was, the Redeemer must be near of kin. One of the most amazing realities of human existence is that a God became a man. One of the things that has caused the most criticism of Christianity has been the virgin birth, even among Christians. It was one of the most debated issues of the early church. Was or was Mary, or was she not a virgin? Friends, you could not have been redeemed without it. Do not doubt the virgin birth. Christ had to be born of woman to free you. In order to properly execute God's plan of redemption, the plan that he devised since before time, Jesus had to be our relative. God's law said so. Remember, family is important to God. No matter what the price, God will be faithful to his word. Therefore, Jesus had to become kin. When God says something, when he demands something, it gets done. Listen, he's God. He has no one to answer to except himself. And yet he not once lies. You can trust someone like that. So, he was our kinsman. That's number two. Number three, the Redeemer must be willing to redeem. We've gone over this quite heavily. What Jesus did, he had to do by choice. He had to choose to live the perfect life, and he had to choose to, to die as if he did not live a perfect life. God's rescue mission, one more time, is a mission of love. There is no love without choice. So number three, he was willing. He was a willing redeemer. He did not, he was not forced into it. Number four, the redeemer must actually redeem. That point can never be forgotten. That was the purpose of his existence. That's why we don't stress Christmas in this ministry. Because Christmas would be meaningless without Easter, if you want to call it that. The purpose of Christ was not to come to the earth born as a baby. The purpose of Christ was to come to the earth to die as a man. And he did die. You must never dishonor Jesus by taking that away from him. Standing in the Garden of Gethsemane, our Lord started to ponder this final step in his role as the kinsman redeemer. 
And this is where we see how immense the price was that he was about to pay. Because even he, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, and he knew he was that. Standing in the Garden of Gethsemane, he knew he was the man God, God man. He knew it. He knew he was the King of Kings. He may not have been aware of that his whole life. I argue he wasn't. But he was in the garden. In the garden of Gethsemane, he knew who he was and what he was meant to do. Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. This is the verse that proves that Jesus had the choice. And it's the verse that sealed his fate. That was when he turned from his own choosing, his own fears, his own willingness to move on to something else and towards God out of love. His love took control. And then something amazing happened. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Imagine, Jesus needed to be strengthened. That blows my mind. You think this was easy? This man who was with God for all eternity, was in agony. In fact, the original word means he was in a struggle for victory. He was struggling. He was fighting within himself to get the victory. And by the way, the proper reaction to this verse is not to doubt his divinity, but rather to trust his humanity to trust his kinship to us. Because only a man could react this way. An angel wouldn't suffer this way. A God wouldn't suffer this way. An angel has no idea what death is. Satan doesn't know what death is. Angels could not have helped us. They're not kin to us. Only one who is touched with our infirmities and tempted in all points as we are could have sufficient payment for our condition. The whole universe can see the law was fulfilled. You must accept that what he's done is enough. You know why? Because God did. But I, I don't know how God can love a person like me. I don't know either. But he does. And if it helps you, God honors the arrangement that he's made for the honor of his son. And that means everything to him. Letting you slip through his fingers would dishonor his son. And he won't do that. 
God is fully aware of what Jesus went through for family. And he won't dishonor the suffering that his son went through because he loves him. Therefore, it doesn't really matter what you've done. It doesn't really matter what you look like in your sin. It doesn't matter how darkened your soul is by sin because he's really not looking at you. He's looking at Jesus. And Jesus was the pure one. He did everything that you couldn't do. Therefore, why should God look at you? You don't have the price. Jesus did. That's why we come to the table. This is where we come and remember him. Because he asked us to. I'm not sure that's emphasized enough in our church services. This table, this celebration is, be, is performed because he asked us to. And you know, the, the tone of that request doesn't make it sound like a commandment. Every request from a king is a commandment. But this doesn't really sound like it. I don't think he framed it that way. When he said, do this in memory of me, it sounded more like a, an invitation. It is a commandment, but it sounds like an invitation. He invites us to participate in this, I believe, so that we can fellowship with him and what he went through. Why do you think it's communion. We're not communing with each other. We're communing with him and each other. He wants to meet us around this table so that we can participate, if only in our minds, in what his redeemer experience was like. He wants to see that we understand and appreciate what he went through. This little ceremony, the one that we're about to celebrate, is a memorial that he instituted. On the night he was betrayed, he took the cup. He said it was the cup of the new covenant. The King James says it's the cup of the New Testament. That's just confusing. It's not wrong, but it's confusing to our modern ears. What he meant to say was that this was going to be the new way God and mankind would be able to start relating to one another again. And that's why Jesus said it was the cup of the new covenant, the new arrangement in his blood. You see, it was his blood that cleared the obstacle that stood between us and God. Of course, that obstacle was that debt that we inherited from Adam. That debt was sin. And the payment to redeem that debt was death. 
You see, Leviticus 17.11 says, the life of the soul resides in the blood. When blood flows out of the body, so does the life. I have the cup in my hand. I, I invite you to do the same. Lift it up. Let's lift it together. You see, this cup is the symbol of the great price Jesus paid to redeem us. When we lift this cup and drink of it, we're showing that we accept it. We accept what he's done. We want to apply it to us. When we partake of this cup, we're telling God we want to be included in the redeemed. We want to travel through the gates of that jail. We want to apply the blood to our sinful nature. If you agree with me, take it now in full knowledge. Take it with me in full knowledge that the blood Jesus spilled was sufficient to pay the price that our debt required. Let's do that now. You know, the human body is really an amazing machine. Believe it or not, it's built to last. You may not feel like it right now, but the body is built to last. It can take quite a beating. The human body doesn't come to an end very easily. It does not give up its life force without a struggle, a violent struggle. The point I'm trying to make is that Jesus had to endure a great deal for you. Jesus did endure a great deal for you. His body had to be battered and bruised and pierced and striped in order to bring about that redemptive death that our bondage to sin demanded. At that very last Passover meal, the one where Jesus brought that ancient Jewish celebration its ultimate meaning, we're told that he paused, he lifted a piece of bread. You know, bread is very, especially unleavened bread, is very important to the Jewish people. It's very important. Unleavened bread is very important to the Jewish Passover ritual meal, the one that he was celebrating. We call that the Seder today. You've heard of that. We've taught on it before. Anyhow, the Seder is highly ritualized set of activities designed to bring to memory the night in ancient Egypt when the death angel passed over and spared the children of Israel in redemption to remove them as God's property from the hands of a foreign owner. It was a picture of redemption. And that was the meal Jesus was celebrating with his friends just prior to his arrest. And in the midst of that meal, we're told Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. He was using symbolism to make a point. He broke that bread. And then he said that it was reminiscent of what was going to happen within the next few hours. 
just like he broke that bread, he himself was going to be responsible for the breaking of his own body. He was giving it willingly. He was the breaking agent. Sure, the Romans may have thought they were beating him. The Romans must have thought they were hammering those nails into his hands. The high priest may have been over there thinking he was the guy that was in charge of all this, but he wasn't. You know who was in charge? Jesus. Because he had to willingly go to that cross to be broken. The law of the kinsman redeemer had to be fulfilled. He could not be dragged to that cross. He had to break that body. That's what this bread means. His body was broken by himself as the necessary means for redemption. I'll say it again. That was not easy. The death of a human body does not come about without some pain. The body takes a lot of punishment, and that's what he meant. That was what he was preparing his disciples for. He wanted them to know that when they saw him being broken, they would know why, and they would know by whose authority. It was his own authority, and he was being broken because they needed to be redeemed. It had to be broken. His body had to be broken because the debt at that point was still outstanding, and it had to be satisfied. He endured a tremendous amount of suffering so they, you and I, could go into the presence of God free. So that's why I have the bread in my hand and I'm looking at it. It's not the body of Christ, but it looks, in my mind, it's a symbol of it. Lift the bread with me and discern with me the suffering he voluntarily endured for our redemption as our kinsman redeemer. I know it's not pleasant to think about. I know. But it's nothing compared to what we could have gone through, and it's certainly nothing compared to what he did go through. Take it now. Try to hold back the tears and thank him for what he's done for us. You've been listening to Time in the Chapel, a weekly program dedicated to bringing you in-depth biblical study. Join us again next time as we search scripture to learn more about God in your life and you in his plan. Time in the Chapel is a service of Chapel Ministries. Chapel Ministries is a non-denominational ministry with a mission to feed hungry souls. Please consider supporting this program financially. For more information, please visit our website at www.timeinthechapel.com or email us at info at timeinthechapel.com. Be sure to look for us on Facebook by searching for Chapel Ministries. Click follow to get all of the latest information.